Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, so welcome everybody. I am Abra Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit agricultural association based out of Westlock, Alberta. We're very excited to be running these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for a third season now. Um, it's been fantastic so far. So if you've missed any, it's on the podcast. Make sure you catch up on it. But yes, this third season has been really good and we have a good few months ahead of us still. So if you've made it onto one of these in the past or have listened to the podcast, you will know that it's a very free flowing conversation and a lot of fun. So don't forget to hang out at the end of the session as 7.30 is when we begin our after networking networking. And this is when the recording comes off and everyone can open up their mics, open up their video. And it's just like a very free flowing conversation. So just a good time. So consider this this time like the networking that would be done in the evening at the end of a conference. Tonight, we are incredibly excited to have Joel Williams with us. Joel spoke at the Organic Alberta Conference, and if he was absolutely amazing there. So I'm looking forward to being able to grill you tonight, Joel, a little bit. Joel's a dynamic plant and soil health educator with a passion for farming systems that focus on managing soil biology along with crop and soil nutrition to optimize plant immunity and soil function. So he is definitely a soils guy through and through. Yes, I'm very excited about having Joel with us. And then we're also really pleased to have Greg Perinich with us from Grey Wooded Forage Association. So we're partnering up with Grey Wooded. They're one of the ARAs in our group of ARAs. Um, that's what Gateway Research Organization is as well. And Greg is the agricultural field specialist for Grey Wooded. So Greg, if you want to open up your mic and just tell us a little bit about what you guys do at Grey Wooded Forage Association and, and what you have to offer people. Thank you, Amber, and, and it's a pleasure to be here to join you this evening uh, in support of the Wednesday Night uh, Network, Great Wooded Forge Association. Uh, we're located uh, in West Central Alberta. Our business office is in Rocky Mountain House, uh, but we're, our service area covers uh, six counties of uh, Clearwater, Lacombe, Mountain View, Pinoka, Red Deer, and Wetaskiwin, which means nothing to anybody from outside Alberta, but it's a large area that we cover. We have a condensed staff of two full-time people. Our business manager, Tatiana Iridenko, and myself as the Ag Field Specialist. And uh, we hire a summer tech uh, to help us with our field projects and their extension events. The main areas of focus that we are engaged in are forage production and improvement, uh, grazing and livestock management, environmental sustainability, uh, soil health and regeneration, and producer field services. Our main areas of activity uh, are basically focused on extension work or uh, knowledge translation and transfer and field days and pasture walks and some demonstrations. And we're able to conduct these activities and services through uh, a lot of grateful help with uh, many, our many sponsors and supporters and partners. They enable us with a small staff to be effective brokers of information and leaders in forage and innovation. So it's our pleasure to uh, be with you tonight and look forward to this evening with Joel. Thank you. Awesome. And then Steve, do you want to give a just a little recap on what we do at Greener Pastures and talk about the topic a little bit? Yes. Um, Steve Kenyon here with Greener Pastures Ranching. I'm super excited to have Joel Williams here. He's one of my rock stars of regenerative agriculture, as I refer to them. Yeah, I've been following Joel for quite a while, and he 
is a, uh, a wealth of information when it comes to soil, soil fertility, uh, nutrients availability, soil biology, plant root systems, exudates. Uh, I just love everything he has to say. So super excited about having him here. Uh, a little bit about Greener Pastures. We're uh, just a custom grazing operation near Edmonton, Alberta, and we've moved into educational uh, parts of it. I've also started working with the Canadian Foraging Grassland Association. We've built a uh, online school, basically, that's a part of a, a Canadian-wide mentorship program that uh, I'm pretty proud of, you know, being a part of that is, is an amazing experience that we're doing right now. So basically, it's a free online school to anybody, anywhere. Mentors are any in any province in Canada, uh, but this, the school itself could be from outside of Canada as well. And uh, yeah, pretty excited about that right now, that uh, that that's uh, an ongoing project that we've been working pretty hard at. So uh, we also actually have uh, Cedric in the background here from the Canadian Forage and Grassland Association. So uh, he's my, uh, he's the grand poobah of the, the CFGA. So glad to have him here too. But uh, tonight's topic is basically about build it and they will come. I, I've got a whole idea rolling around in my head now about an article uh, to write about uh, if we give the invitation to the party, how many people can we get to show up, right? So how do you invite all of the fungus, the bacteria, the, all that soil biology, how do we get them to come to our party if we're going to start an underground party? So that's kind of where I want to start out tonight, uh, talking about the soil and the soil biology and the, you know how the plants interact with that and how they develop that, how maybe even where the, the uh, livestock uh, bring that into our system, right? How that, that symbiotic relationship between the livestock and the soil biology and how we can develop that to increase our soil capability, the, you know, how much fertility is available in there versus how much is actually there. How do we improve that? And, 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 you know, if we build it, how do we get them to come? So that's my question to Joel tonight. So I'm going to turn it over to Joel. Now he can do a little bit of an introduction on himself and a little bit of his thoughts on the topic tonight, and then we'll kick into questions and answers. And I, I'm pretty sure tonight you better get your questions in early because there's going to be a lot of them. Because if you guys aren't asking them, I sure will be. So thanks, Joel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, yeah, great pleasure to be here and great to see such a, such a good turnout as well. So really looking forward to, to the discussion um, over the next little while. Okay, so a little bit about me, for those of you that may not, I'm sure some of you know me well enough, and maybe some not, it's good to see some different faces, I recognize some faces um, here tonight, which is great, but also plenty that I don't as well. So, so a little bit on my background, I'm originally from Australia, that's where I was born and raised, and that's where I studied agriculture originally, and I've always been into soils, soils has been a passion of mine since I was, it's been a good over 20 years for me now, back when soils weren't quite as so trendy as they are these days. Um, I got into soil when I was about 15 or 16, and I decided I was going to go and study soil. So that's that's what I did in Australia. And at that time, as a young adult, I would tell people that I was studying soil and uh, I would get, you know, raised eyebrows and funny looks from people, um, uh, soil with such a particular tone there. But, and yeah, 20 years on, it's uh, great to see so much traction behind this topic. But, you know, I have to be honest that if I rewind that 20 odd years, the, the general 
feeling about soils within agriculture and certainly during my time at, at university and studying it is that soils had a reputation for being a very dry topic. Uh, most people really didn't like that. The, most people studying broad agri- broader degree of agriculture, which of course would cover, cover many different facets, soils was just one part of that. For most people, uh, most students, soils was the one that was pushed to the side and um, usually hated, and that was the exact word. It was dry, and uh, I think it's fascinating to see that that right now it is the exact opposite of that. It, soil is arguably one of the most interesting pieces of the puzzle when we think broadly about agriculture. You know, it's such a hot topic now. Great to see. And uh, I think it's definitely one of the most interesting pieces of the puzzle in this thing we we call farming. So I think that's been a fantastic um, 180 degrees to see that happen in the last 20 odd years. And um, yeah, I feel very lucky and very privileged to be in this space now, having been a student of the soil myself for such a long time. And uh, uh, and that is something that I will consider myself to be forever. I. I, uh, I'll be honest, I really I don't like it when people call me as a soils expert or a soil health expert. I, I really don't like this word. Um, you know, in, the, in my last 20 years of studying soil, it's, it's that classic line that the more and more I've learned, the, the less and less I realize I know. And um, it's that classic kind of line. And so I think when you kind of when you cap this title of being an expert on something, that you're basically saying, you know, there's pretty much there. I know all there is to know. I'm an expert in this topic, and I that's that's a accolade that I don't want to reach. I will forever be open-minded and a student of the soil. It's just impossible that we're ever going to know everything about this incredible ecosystem. So, so that's uh, I, I come from that background, but I'm also half British. I also my father is Welsh, and uh, I also lived in the UK for many years. So I've lived over in Europe for a good ten or so years, and got a lot of different experiences over there, in very different soil types and climate from uh, Australia, and um, have done a lot of work over there, and still very active in Europe. I'm, it's probably where I do most of my work these days would be Europe and Canada. During my time there, I also, after doing lots of different work, um, I've worked in a range of different jobs in the space of kind of microbials, biological inputs, nutrients, fertilizers, foliars, biostimulants, um, soil analysis, laboratories, advice, consulting, everything in that space. I've kind of all generally in this, this kind of broad area. And um, during my time there in the UK, I also, after a while, decided to go back to university and do my master's. And there I went and studied food policy just to do something a little different, a little uh, still very much overlapping, but uh, it was really looking more at the, the food systems as a whole. So there I kind of looked at um, sustainability, food system transitions, particular focus on intercropping um, and how that sits in this broad discussion of trans transition from conventional agriculture towards um, something more sustainable, whatever we call that. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, I've been living here in Canada since 2017. So it's come up to now five years for me and, uh, it's been great. I love it here. And since I moved here five years ago, I, yeah, I got very busy, um, with invitations to travel the world and speak. And so now I feel very privileged for me. It's really kicked off in the last five years or so since moving here and, uh, excluding 
the last couple of years um, regarding thou who shall not be named. Um, but prior to that, uh, was <laughs> very active and traveling. And thankfully, that's coming back to normal. Um, I uh, was just in Europe um, in November for a couple of weeks. That was my first trip overseas. And um, heading back there in February and onwards to Australia straight after. So getting back to normal and it's nice to be back on the road and meet with farmers again and speak to them and uh in the in the flesh of course and um uh, it was uh, i had a really good time a few weeks ago when i was there it was just so nice to 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 meet people again and have that personal interaction so um that was great but i also have to acknowledge there's a part of me that has appreciated what this has brought us this time, these last few years, and these opportunities like what we're doing right now through Zoom. I know we're a little bit Zoomed out at times, but you have to admit it's it's become an incredibly powerful tool um, for us all to connect and stay connected so easily. It's been fantastic. So I think I've I've also really gained an appreciation for this too. But I have a question for you, Joel. <laughs> In your travels, what do you do you see any similarities or major differences? in what people are looking for in their soils or what they're interested in? Mm. Yeah, good question. You know, I've got to say, I think there is, despite the world being such a big and diverse place and so many different contexts and things, that I have to say that I think there's a huge amount of overlap and similarities between what's happening all here and all around the world. Uh, I think I find farmers are really interested in the same topics, one one that we're going to focus in on today, soil biology and, and the soil, soil life and soil health piece of the puzzle. I mean, this is just such a common theme. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, I would actually say and everyone's interested in using less fertilizers, improving efficiencies, using less inputs, using less pesticides. Everybody's interested in saving money on those and, and not needing, not having to use them unless, you know, really needed. So I think this is a very common one, um, this, this kind of focus on input reduction and, and, and this focus on, on soil health for sure. And that's, that's that fuzzy word, soil health. How do we define it? What do we mean? Depends on the context. But even though they can't themselves necessarily put a finger on exactly what they mean when they say soil health, but they all say, I want to improve my soil health. Yes, I want to run a viable business. And yes, I need to be profitable, but I also want to really improve my soil health. And and then that opens up that that can of worms of, okay, well, what do we mean? And and what are we looking for there? So, um, so yeah, I, I, to answer your question, I would say that you'd be surprised. There's a lot of very similarities, I think, across many parts of the world. It's been a, a huge change in 10 years, right? 10 years ago, nobody really cared about soil health. And all of a sudden it's just kicked off and it's moving like a, like a grass fire, <laughs> right? Like we used to talk about, everybody would want to know about plant species and, and grazing. That was pretty popular. I was moving in, but soil health has really kickstarted the last 10 years and maybe even the last five, even more. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. I think it's especially the last ten years or so. It's 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 really kicked off, and and I kind of noticed that traction really building when I was in the UK just prior to moving here in those few years just before I moved to, moved here in two thousand seventeen. I really noticed a big upswing, and um, 
And I'm sure many of you are familiar. I'll, I'll give a, a, a small plug here. I'm sure many of you are familiar with um, a conference over there in, in England called Groundswell. If any of you get ever get the chance to, to head over there and attend that conference, I would highly recommend it. It is a fantastic event um, focusing in on all of this space. And, um, you know, it's only been going for five years, but it was it, it was right as it, it started just a year or two before I left. And it, it, it was like 500 people in year one. And this last year, there was 5,000 people. It, it, it reached that in the space of five years. And it's an incredible event. And I, I also mentioned this because we were just having a bit of pre-discussion before the recording started, but it was one of the years that I was speaking there, uh, as was Alan Savory. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting next to him at dinner. We had dinner at the host at the host farm's house, um, all of the speakers, and um, there was quite a few other people there too. And um, we had supper, and uh, just by chance, I ended up ended up next to Alan at the dinner table, and. Uh, had a real pleasure of an evening chatting to him for uh, a good hour or so while we ate dinner. It was, it was fantastic. And he, yeah, such a nice, we were just talking briefly earlier, but such a down to earth man. I'll, I'll have to go and have a tune listening to the podcast that was mentioned earlier, but he is such a humble and down to earth man. And, uh, he was very interested in what I had to say and was very interested in the topic of soil and the depth that I was kind of talking to him about that. He was, um, yeah, very humble and really nice man. I, 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 I hold that as a very dear memory. I got to spend an evening with Alan at the dinner table, so um, that's kind of, yeah. There's a little link there between some of our discussions, but so yeah, I, I agree, Steve. It's really kicked off, uh, and it's really in this last five to ten years, especially. So, that's and great. Um, we do have questions rolling in. Uh, <laughs> I haven't even got to my opening thoughts on build it and they'll come. Oh my goodness. So go. Yeah, for sure. Go on. <laughs> Sorry. We're like, Whoa, well, we want to grill you now, Joel. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah give, give, go for it. You can get into it, but um, so that's fine too. I'll try and keep this brief because this is a big topic. You know, we could go on this forever, but I think let's let's try and focus on the on the half that that Steve has opened with and and set the stage. But what we're really what we see at the moment is um, and what we're really kind of tapping into is this discussion is that there is these two schools of thought about soil biology. And on one side, um, we have you know the strong kind of purists approach that says, look, we don't need, we don't need to. Uh, we don't need to introduce new organisms. We don't need to inoculate, apply new biology, introduce foreign bugs and aliens, these kinds of things. Um, let's just let's just create the environment in which they will thrive. And so there's one very kind of pure side on that, which I you know very much support that view. Um, and the other view is well that you know that there could be scope for introducing new organisms using microbial inoculants. Of various kinds to kickstart the system to repopulate that we acknowledge that you know 70 years of plowing has probably disturbed much of the biology and maybe there's an argument that we do need to reintroduce maybe some overuse of fungicides has compromised some of the soil fungi and maybe there's an argument that we need to introduce them you know so we're really tapping into this these two different kind of schools of thought here and and I am a bit of a fence sitter on this one. I, I do actually subscribe to both schools of thought, but but I do believe that the foundation, the first and the starting point, really should be on the focusing on the long-term soil health management, improving soil structure, improving water movement, air movement, 
build the environment for sure. Um, and I think, you know, I do think there's an argument that maybe specialist inoculants or certain products and things, um, be that commercially purchased or more preferably made on farm, more of the DIY ones I think are preferable, um, that there may be scope for those just to help kickstart things, to, to kick it along. Um, but still, you can't, this is the trap, of course, that people fall into. You can't introduce inoculants without still focusing on that overall soil health you have to you you can focus just on building it and they will come but you can't focus on just introducing organisms because you can't put the organisms into an environment in which they're not going to thrive you know we can't go sit, sit ourselves on the moon you know without the appropriate equipment to breathe and to stay alive so it's the same same analogy so you can do one without the other but not the other way so um so i agree that the foundation has to be uh follow the soil health principles minimize disturbance let's get gas exchange water exchange keep soil covered living roots let's do all those things as the foundation and sure in in certain situations maybe there's a time and a place for some of those um, inoculants and introducing of of specific microbes, and and not that we could we'll talk about it today, but we could go into examples that that also happens in nature. It is a natural process uh, for organisms to be inoculated into new environments. It is something that happens through seeds of the plants. And and to your point earlier, Steve, even you mentioned let's try and weave in a bit of discussion around livestock through livestock. You know, as animals move through the land. They have a biome on them. Of course, the big one is from their manure, but you know their saliva, their skin, their hair. They have a biome on their bodies, in and on their bodies, and they deposit that into um, environments as they move. So, so that's an example of where they are in introducing and bringing different groups of organisms into the system. And again, that's a natural thing to happen, and there can be advantages to that. So, um, so I, so that's my kind of view on this. But, but as a foundation, I, I do support the idea that we do need to get back to basics and and focus on building it so that they can come. Great. I really like that. I completely agree. Um, it goes the same way when we're talking about chemical usage or anything of that nature. You know, one of the things that I'll tell people is I'm like, I'm not necessarily against using chemicals, but you need to change your management structure so that you don't have to continue using chemicals. And yeah, exactly the same thing. So Etienne is up first. Etienne, are you ready? Hi, Joel. Uh, good to see you again. Hi. Um, I'm wondering if biology plays a role in what species we see show up in our pasture or in the forage and the weeds and everything like that. Mm, okay, yeah, good question. And this is another one of those examples where we have looked through some of the literature and material out there. More traditionally, we talk about weeds as indicators. More traditionally, we associate that as them as indicators of of chemistry, of nutrition, of fertility, of chemical fertility. Um, and there are many examples of that, certain weeds that will grow in you know, high nitrogen conditions or only in compacted soils or only in salty conditions, these kinds of things. So generally, we, we kind of talk about that from the view of um, considering the, the chemical fertility. And I think there's many good examples, um, very useful um, examples where that is the case. The other view focuses a little more on the biology uh, as well, and that's another piece of the puzzle. And again, for me, I kind of think that there's an element of truth in both of these schools of thought. I think absolutely that some plant species are 
uh, indicators of biology um, imbalances um, as or or balances to get the plants that you do want to grow um, for sure. Um, and you know, much of that thinking kind of stems from that more of the ecological principle of this fungal to bacterial ratio. This would be the main kind of area where this is discussed, whereby through that process of ecological succession, through that process of soil formation, when plants go through that process of colonizing soil and, and turning parent material and rock and geology into topsoil, um, that it is a layered process of certain organisms starting that growing first and it's things like algae and lichens and mosses and and um, some of these micro plants and microorganisms that through time uh, they change that um, material they grow and die deposit their dead bodies so that the soil formation begins to accelerate and change um, and with that changes the balance of microorganisms that grow in that soil. Uh, and so if we kind of look at that ecological succession and say, well, it takes us from microorganisms and microplants through to pioneer weedy type plants, annual plants, through to perennial grasses, perennial plants, through to onwards to perennial shrubs and, and trees through that ecological succession, that there is a microbial balance that shifts underneath that from being very bacterial dominated to very fungal dominated. And so that's really the argument that it, particularly if you see a lot of those early successional weeds, annual weeds, that they are an indicator of um, disturbed conditions of an early successional state. And that if you can adjust the microbial balances towards a, a more fungal direction of more fungal dominant, that that can then select for some of the, for example, maybe your perennial forages or some of the other more advanced kind of row crops that you're trying to grow. And so I think that, um, so yes, I, I support both of these ideas. I think there's an element of truth in both of them. I don't think they play out all of the time. I don't think it's always a foolproof. I think there's always a bit of context and nuance that sometimes it's, there's just other factors maybe at play. But I think as a general rule and a general philosophy, I, I support the idea. And I think that as an example, be be mindful that you have to think about the biology and the soil and the plants. They are one. They it's we shouldn't separate them. And that that classic idea that says, well, well, we'll just adjust your soil biology and then you'll change the plants that grow. But don't forget it goes both ways. The plants that you grow will change the biology. And and that's kind of the counterpoint on that that thinking of ecological succession. Is it is it that the soils become became more fungal dominated? And that's why trees and mature and late successional plants grow? Or is it that as those plants colonized and grew in the soil, that the types of exudates that they're releasing, the types of litter that they deposit, then encouraged the fungi? Uh, it's this kind of chicken or the egg. So, so I also support the idea that you can also use plants to change the biology and that that's very much a uh, two-way street. That's an interactive kind of cyclical kind of process. So so, yeah, I, I, I do think that um, weeds can be an indicator of biological imbalances, but I do think that this is much harder. Some of the general rules associated with the chemistry fertility are more easier to observe and pinpoint. Trying to observe these imbalances from a biological perspective gets a lot more difficult because it's harder to look at the soil and determine, you know, the biology um, just to the naked eye kind of thing. So, so yeah, I do think it has merit, um, but it's just about fine-tuning 
those ideas with your observations on your farm and, and your soils. And I think it, to close on it, it's so hard to sometimes answer questions and be brief. Hey, it's just, there's so much to say, but I think just to close this point, I would encourage you to use your observation, get out there and look in areas where you do have weed pressure versus where you do not. This is the critical, I think, practical um, outcome of this discussion go and you know dig in the soil and look and and try and observe what's happening where you do have a weed pressure versus where you do not and it's that relative comparison between the two where maybe you'll start to identify and have some clues about why the weeds are growing there and um, from a kind of more micro but also stand back and put it, put that in the context of the field and the landscape at a, at a at a slightly more macro perspective as well uh, i'm going to add to that actually I'm going to challenge you a little bit, Joel, but I think it's going to complement what you said. <laughs> so years ago, uh, I don't even remember where where this was. It was at a conference or a school or a seminar somewhere, but they talked about the transition theory versus the succession theory. Okay, you, met, you mentioned the succession theory a few times, and I was told years ago, the succession theory was developed under a wet environment, right, in Britain. Uh, specifically, I remember them saying where it goes from, you know, opens bare soil to weeds, to forage, to shrubs, to trees, right? The succession theory, but that doesn't happen in every environment. So sometimes uh, the, the transition theory that was told to me, this was probably 20 years ago, is that we have the ability through management or through environmental conditions to move not in a linear succession, but in a, in, in the transition theory, it, it's kind of side to side, back and forth, right? So when you were talking about the fungal to bacteria ratio, I mean, I've talked about that before, the more fungal that the soil gets, you get more woody species, right? So in that environment, the weeds would be shrubs and trees and rose bushes and willows or whatever it is. Whereas if we get more bacterial dominated soil, our weeds would be, you know, your typical weeds that we talk about. So uh, what is your opinion on the, you know, the, the succession theory versus the transition theory. And I, I, you pretty much described it there, but um, that is really what cued me on, on your discussion there is, is, is there a difference or how would you see that? Mm, yeah, good question. Yeah. And I take your point. I think you're right to say that it is, is it is all relative uh, in that regard. So what we call weeds in one section will be different from the other. And therefore it is important to say, well, what is the context here? And um, uh, therefore, what? how do we define what we're trying to grow versus what we are not trying to grow? Um, so I think you're, you're right to, to make that point. And I think that you know, here in the, on the prairies, kind of a context. Uh, of course, it's it's also the fact that when we graze, you know, those that animal impact in that grazing event that that is a disturbance that um, that also helps to keep those grasslands as grasslands. Um, you know, that so that's a that's a positive. We always talk about disturbances as if they're some a bad thing, but um, that is a disturbance. We could argue that. If the prairies were left, maybe they would move a little more advanced through that succession. But the thing that really holds them back, even if they were ungrazed without that disturbance, it is the dry. The reason grasses and grasslands thrive in the dry environments is because they grow from the base and therefore they're actually a lot more drought tolerant than a tree that once it's established, if it has you know a couple of successive dry years, it can kill that tree and it's it's done. 
Whereas because of grass, the growing points come from the base of the plant, you know, the roots are always a reserve to, to regrow. So, so it's not just that, that grazing itself keeps the grasslands as grasses. It's also the drier um, environment that, that is also helping to, to steer that as well. So, but yeah, I think you're right. You know, often some of these ideas from Europe mentality um, have imprint, imprinted over, over here in, in Australia, in, in the Americas, same, same, same principle. Um, and yeah, you're right. They're not always the same and they're not always trans transferable. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, quite dry environments where like silver willow is taking over or, you know, it, it seems like it's a different type of shrub that's coming in. But I, I think that's again, due to management, due to environmental conditions, right? We can, we can take that that piece of land and manage it well and move it more fungal. Right. But can we get it too far where we have to move it back to more bacterial? Right. I learned, I've, I've said this before on here too, but if, if you're getting that, your, your fungal ratio is too high on the fungus side, you need to trample green live plant material to try and move it back. Whereas if it's too bacterial, you need to trample dead plant material to get it to be more fungal because the bacteria like the green, and the fungus likes the dead material, right? So that's a tool that I've learned over the years. I don't know if it's working yet because I haven't been at this long enough to, to figure that out, but that's a tool that we can use to help move the, the transition theory back and forth, right? Instead of it always going to, you know, you're never going to get a forest at Drumheller, Alberta. Correct. That's yeah. right. I agree. I agree. I don't know what the question was, but that was a great discussion. I'm, I, thanks, Etienne. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one kind of leads really interestingly from that question. So <clears throat> it was put in chat, but the Will's internet's unstable. Um, is a ca academia catching up to the dynamic view of soil, or does it still see it as a growing medium governed solely by chemistry? <laughs> yeah, good. Good question. I would say it's definitely catching up. Yes, uh, things are changing. I, I, I will say that um, going back to my introduction, when I studied agriculture 20 odd years ago, I in our faculty of agriculture, we only had a professor of soil chemistry and a professor of soil physics. We did not even have a professor of soil biology in the agriculture department. So of course, my entire four-year degree was completely soil chemistry and soil physics. And we did in four-year degree, I did one lecture on soil biology, uh, one 40-odd minute lecture, um, which was just the basics. You know, oh, here's bacteria, here's worms. I remember it still. It was called The Soil Environment was the name of the lecture. And um, so that was, um, you know, so consequently I come from a background, <clears throat> background much more of soil chemistry. That, that is my background. I preferred chemistry to physics. But I will acknowledge that it, although it was like that then, definitely I would say that things are changing. Uh, to, to answer your question, yes, uh, academia is definitely catching up. I would also say that in some areas, in some schools, it's that the, there are many fantastic academics doing excellent work in this space who really are, you know, I know we always have that, which I also believe and support, you know, that it's really farmers who are doing a lot of the 
the really pioneering work and, and academia is kind of always playing catch up. Um, I do also definitely support that view. And from my experience traveling around the world, meeting farmers all around the world, I agree that that is what is happening. Uh, it, it's particularly in this kind of soil health space. Um, but I will acknowledge there is some excellent work happening in some of our institutions at the moment from, from some of our academics. So, so yes, thankfully, 20 years on compared to when I studied, things are absolutely changing now for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll agree with that, Joel. Uh, there's some fantastic professors out there that I've been working with uh, in the in the you know the last five ten years that have really caught on to this. They've jumped on board too. So that's a that's a bo- big bonus that we need. We need the universities to catch up. A few years back, my daughter actually went into uh, dairy production at uh, one of the colleges here, and I remember telling her that whatever you're learning there, the number one thing that the advice that I gave her was ask them, what else does it do? Was my question, right? So whatever, you know, production practice, whatever product or whatever thing that they're telling you that, you know, you need to use, uh, ask them, what else does it do? And a couple of years later, I actually talked to the Dean of Agriculture from that, uh, that college. And uh, I said, so you, you met my daughter and, and uh, how, how's it going? And, and she said to me, yeah, yeah, your daughter is very interesting. She poses some very difficult questions. <laughs> so right there, uh, 100%, I feel that I was successful. <laughs> so she's asking some tough questions when she was there. So um, yeah, but there's been some fantastic uh, professors that I've met in the in the you know, the last 10 years that are doing some wonderful work in, in academia. There's a lot of it that was far behind. Like you just made me laugh there, Joel, when uh, you only had two professors in biology wasn't even a part of it, right? There's so many people that have been educated that way, right? Who are experts in the field now, the agrologists, the everybody out there that all they think about is physics and chemistry. Nobody's putting biology into the picture. And I'm so happy that now biology is getting thrown in there as a, as a big priority. So uh, super excited about that. It's neat. Even the University of Alberta, we have, um, I have a few favorite soil scientists from the University of Alberta now as well, which is fantastic. Um, next up, we have Phil. Are you ready to go, Phil? Yes, I am, Amber. Perfect. Thank you. So, Joel, I have a two-part question. Uh, my first one is, is there much uh, value in biochar being added to manure uh, to fields? The other one is, just because you're a soil guy, what do you have any experience with Terra Preta from the Amazon? Okay. Um, I would say, well, let me answer that second one first, because that's the easy one. No, <laughs> I've never, uh, I've never been to, to Southern America at all. And um, I've never, never had the chance to experience kind of how they have, how they've done it traditionally or any of those sites or anything. So, so no, um, for that one uh, on the bucket list, I guess. To the first question, you know, biochar is a real funny one. Uh, it's it's like, okay, like we were talking about a bit earlier, this topic of soil health, and there's a lot of so much traction and, and momentum in all of the space at the moment. Biochar is another one that's the same. That And it's one of, there's a handful of examples. There's not many, but there's a handful of examples where I'm seeing both academia and research agenda and research kind of um, uh, work um, lining up with field and practice and farmers and, and field practice. I would say intercropping is one of those and, and biochar would be one of the other ones. 
where there is so much research happening on biochar at the moment. You talk, like, okay, I spend time reading academic papers and um, you type in biochar, it's just unbelievable. There is so much work happening on with biochar at the moment. And it seems to be not, it's gaining somewhat practice uh, momentum, I would say, amongst certain circles of, of the farming world. But one of the biggest ch- um, challenges and hurdles seems to be just the, the cost economics of it, the amount that you kind of need for soil. Applic- I'm going to start by kind of focusing on soil application, then we'll come back to your, your question. The, the amounts that you typically need to apply to the soil are quite high. And it just, it seems to be very impractical and uneconomical to, to kind of use it at, at any kind of real scale. If we're talking about maybe intensive, maybe high value market gardening or horticultural kind of situation, could be the, could be an argument there. But one thing that's also very clear is that um, the literature, there's so many studies on biochar, and one of the things that's very important about it is that is that you shouldn't use it on its own um, as a soil application. It really should be mixed with nutrients. Uh, when you put biochar into the soil on its own, it can have a tendency to tie up nutrients from the soil, whereas if you preload it with nutrients and so mix it with manure, for example, mix it with compost or mix it with slurry. I mean, there'd be uh, other nutritional inputs. Then the biochar is preloaded. Then when you apply it to soil, it's not going to take as much from the soil and it can, can be much more beneficial. So consequently, where I see some interesting work with biochar these days in the literature anyway, is using it in that regard as an, an amendment to compost um, or to composting manure. Um, or with slurries and um, lagoon kind of systems, um, that where that is where I think it has um, very good um, potential, and that's maybe a bit more practical for its use. But the the literature is also very clear. It's a very favorable product. It, it stimulates soil biology. It provides a house for them to grow prolifically. There's a very strong synergy with the biology and and, and biochar, um, and also I think then from a more rather if you're not composting the manure. The other area where it seems to be, I've seen a few papers on this now, um, is using it as a livestock supplement, as a feed. And some of that work has looked at trying to do that to capture greenhouse gases and reduce methane emissions and all of that kind of angle. Um, But beyond that, I think that's a good mechanism to get the biochar preloaded with those nutrients that I was talking about through the rumen, through the digestion. And then when it comes out with the manure, uh, from a grazing point of view, just plonked out on the land with the manure. I think in that context, I think that's a much more smarter, more efficient way to use such a material. Uh, and I think it could have some benefit um, in that regard. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I think I think the idea of putting it with manure is a very good idea for the key reason that that brings nutrients and then the biochar together. Excellent. My, my biggest concern with biochar, I'm, I don't know very much about it. I've, I've, you know, read some studies on it. We've had a few trials on it. My biggest concern is that our agricultural populations are addicted to products, mm-hmm. right? So now we're saying, well, you, you shouldn't use chemicals. You shouldn't use fertilizers. And all of a sudden now everybody's looking for another product. Right. All of a sudden, well, what, what can we, well, if we can't use fertilizers, we can't use this and we can't add this to their feed well, what can we add, right? My, my first question is, why do we have to add something in the first place, right? Is there a way to do this naturally? Is, can we rebuild that soil with the livestock? Can we, re, right, that's a natural way. Like, 
putting Biocar in through the manure. I, I'm I, I'm very curious about that, but I don't want people to get uh, how do I say it? Just stuck in this paradigm of we have to add something. We always have to buy a product and add to it, right? I, my, one of my sayings is that you know if it doesn't come in a box, a bag, or a bottle, we don't want to put it on, right? Like we're addicted to that box, bag, and bottle. So, can we get away from that entirely, or is this a, an actual tool? So, there's quite a bit of research, like Joel said, uh, out there, and I'm interested in it. I'm waiting to see some of the results, but so far, the stuff that I've seen hasn't been, you know, drastically, you know, wanting me to run out there and do it especially when you start looking at the economics, right? You've got to start trucking stuff in, man. <laughs> how far can you afford to haul manure before it doesn't work anymore? Not very far. So how far can you haul biochar before you? it's not economical? I don't think it's going to be very far. So we need to figure out some more economical ways to make this, you know, just naturally happen, I guess. But yeah, I'm not against it by any means, but I just want to make people aware that you don't have to buy something all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. And is there a way to do this without without it? So I, I agree. I agree. Just one thing I was hoping to add is the one thing that I was uh, asking about this is I live in a I said this on this podcast before I'm the stereotypical lumberjack Canadian where I live, where uh, it's all forests, all woods. We have so much byproduct to do this easily. That for us, it's our, our competitive advantage, I guess, that uh, you would look for. Um, and I was just curious if, is it really worth it? Or is it just something that's going to add like 2 3% or or is it something that actually has value is more my question. And it's, yeah, if you were in Alberta in the Plains, probably not very valuable. But uh, where we live, it's uh, something we're considering, but we just want to make sure it was actually useful. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah, no, I, it, it's definitely good for soils when used properly. Um, uh, so if you have that advantage and it's easily available and et cetera, then sure, I think that's the right context for where it, it can be applicable. But so that sounds like sounds like a right opportunity. But um, yeah, I also agree with Steve's last point. It's it's not that you we have to be using this. It could be a good um, piece of the puzzle, but it's not necessarily essential. I don't know if she's willing to or not, but Yamily's in the chat and I don't always do this, but she is a soil scientist that's been working on biochar. So it kind of makes sense for her to actually chip in if she wants to. So Yamily, if you're, if you're around for sure, you can. So talking about biochar is like a, everything that comes as a mode. When biochar was introduced to this part of the world, I know the professor that was working with that in Cornell, they started doing that. And this was like a really big boom of, you know, the biochar. Now we have the same idea right now here in Canada. But to me, is if we understand what the biochar is, we can, we can see how the use could be and where this can be used. Because what is biochar? Biochar is just let's say organic matter or some kind of material like a wood that is being petrified at some point. And it's a process to go to the labor to get to biochar. When the end product of, of that come out, you will see this like a, probably has a lot of charge. And what is the charge is gonna do in the soil? It could do good things and it could do bad things. And one of the good things that could do is that it will increase probably the catch and exchange capacity of the soil. And when that happens, if you have the nutrients there, you have the minerals, you have the condition, it could work pretty well. 
But if you don't have the soil in that condition that allow that biochar or any other product that you're gonna put there, it's gonna be a failure. And that's why there is so much work in there because it's a really probably poor understanding of how this material works because we need to see the soils in a different way. That's how I see the biochar. Thanks, Emily. I think that goes back to the whole point that Joel was making too about inputs and, you know, um, injecting living organisms into the soils. If, if there's nothing there that can hold on to them and make use of it, well, you know, you're, you're kind of burning money at that point. So another way to look, another way to look at it is our, what are we adding to the soil? Right. One of the things I'm always trying to add is carbon. Right. The more carbon you get, the more biology you get, the more nitrogen you get stored. Uh, I remember a fella, I did some consulting for a fella uh, north of here a ways, and he got free truckloads of wood pulp. Right. It was just the byproduct from whatever the paper mill or the wood mill that he was closest to. And he got it dumped on his land and he spread it. Right. They would bring it for free and dump it on his land. To me, it was bale grazing. I mean, my only concern is what is in it. Right. Would in the process of doing whatever they were doing, what chemicals did they use? What, you know, what additives, what process did it go through? But he he had to put on his land. It, to me, it was similar to bale grazing. You're just inputting a bunch of carbon and a bunch of nutrients. And he had some phenomenal pastures out of it. That was his advantage, just like Phil said. It's his advantage because he's close by. So is it biochar or is it wood pulp or is it, you know, sawdust that you can throw out there? I, I, you know, what is the addition that you have the advantage of and will that hurt your biology? And like Emily said, or will it benefit your biology? Do you have any other comments on that? Just, it's an interesting conversation, Joel. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's one of, I, I ultimately really support this problem of the economics of its use, but I think that, um, it's just about if it is to be, if it is going to be used, it just needs to be used in a much more targeted way. And I think soil broadcasting is not the way to use it, but I could see merits of very small amounts of it being um, applied more so, you know, banded in the row, maybe even a micronized biochar to create a liquid that could be dribbled into the furrow. So then we're talking about very small amounts of a material that has a very high surface area that would be could potentially be dribbled into a seed row, okay, in a cropping situation, for example, where then you might also put some compost extract and the seed, and then you've got, you know, the biochar being the house, the um, extract being the biology, and the roots and the rutexates being the food. You know, I think in that very, very focused and targeted way of kind of using it, then I, I could see a, a potential benefit there. And the rates, the amounts that you would use in that context are very small. Um, so I think it just needs the right targeted approach. Or again, the example of maybe using it with slurries or to, to kind of try and stabilize manure, um, that kind of thing in, for example, hog systems or intensive dairy or something like that. So I think maybe in the right context, it has its place, but um, but I, yeah, I agree. There's many ways. I mean, there's many ways to get carbon into the soil. So you can do it in other ways. But but the nature of biochar is that it is a very stable structure. It's a permanent addition to the soil. So that carbon sponge that you add is a permanent addition. And it is the evidence is very clear. Soil biology absolutely loves to grow on it and in it and all over it. So so it is a good house for biology. And then 
okay, it's not a magic bullet. You still then are going to need roots and root exudates and foods to feed those those organisms. So it's not it's not a silver bullet. It just it might be a piece of the puzzle in a system, um, but only under the right context. I think, yeah. Fantastic. That was that was great. Um, we have Barbara up next. Are you ready to go, Barbara? Sure. I wanted to ask uh, what evidence there is that the universities are willing to really go with some of this no, no amendments and and bringing nature back to what nature can do, because we have a tendency to throw stuff at nature without any idea of what the impacts are going to be. But we also know that the universities are financially supported by the pharmaceutical industry that does the various chemicals that are used in agriculture. So what what intelligence do you have on that now? <laughs> mm, yeah, that's a tough one. I would say this. Um, within institutions, I would say there's a very broad range of researchers and individuals some of those, I think, you're, to the to the essence of your question, I agree, are very tied in and locked up with um, the funding which they are dependent on, and therefore uh, not having full yeah um, influence over that that research agenda. That that is, you know, many of our institutions are very captured in that regard, and, and that is a phenomenon that's happening for sure. However, I wouldn't say that that is one hundred percent of the case. Um, there certainly are um, some researchers in universities all around the world, I would argue, doing very good work in this kind of space um, or other similar topics. I mean, I would I would use an it's maybe not to the exact essence of your question on terms of low inputs or no input type type approaches. But, for example, lately, there's been a lot of traction in this broad topic of agroecology. Now, that's not quite specific as the point that you're asking, but it is definitely part of agroecology is is really all about designing food producing systems that are closed loop that support nature and ecology as well as produce food at the same time. Um, And it brings a lot of then the social, cultural, social justice pieces of the puzzle into that as well. It's a very broad church. Um, so I would say that that as a theme, uh, agroecology is is quite a fairly hot topic, and and that is all about what you're talking about. It's really it's, it's about how do you just design a closed loop farming system that typically integrates animals and plant um, agrobiodiversity, plant diversity, and uses them in a circular way to um, to improve uh, environmental outcomes, but also to produce food. So uh, so I would just say that. As that's one small example, but there are definitely are some researchers who are interested in low input systems in intercropping as a tool to use less fertilizer. I mean, that would be a very fairly mainstream example as well. So, so I would say that there is definitely, I think there's there is some light in this ton in this dark space. There are definitely good people and good individuals out there. Um, they're probably not in the majority. Um, but I would say that it is happening, but it, it, you're right. I think to the essence of the question is that these, you know, here we are today asking all these wonderful questions and kind of, um, meandering our way through this broad topic and trying to cover lots of bases and share information, uh, amongst us all and ideas and answer these questions. Um, we're doing the best we can with the resources and the tools that we all have, um, which is, of course, ourselves and our community and our social. But imagine if we had financial resources to to really 
drive this research agenda and answer these questions, of course, it would accelerate things so immensely. It would accelerate progress so immensely. Um, and that's often a criticism I see and amongst perhaps some of the conventional world is that, you know, oh, this is still very much a fringe idea. It's still in the minority. Well, we still don't have really good, robust evidence to support no input kind of systems. And and the truth is, like these these types of questions and these types of systems have been so underfunded for the last fifty odd years. Um, so although we, I think we are beginning that process, we we have reached that tipping point of realizing, okay, what we were doing is not sustainable. Environmental degradation is everywhere. We do need to kind of do something about all these nutrient leaching and etc. problems. Um, so I would say it is swinging into this kind of school of thought, but it's just happening very slowly and with skepticism. And I think that it's just an obvious point. Imagine if we had the last 50 years of funding to research, you know, regenerative grazing and, and all right. of these kinds of topics. Imagine where we would be today. if, exactly. if so. Yeah, I had this conversation with the man who is the executive director of something called Capital Partners and Capital Partners represents trillions of dollars circling around looking for investment in, he tells me, regenerative agriculture. And he said, I've been talking to the organic people. I said, that's not regenerative. And he said, well, we've been talking to the University of Pennsylvania. I said, that's not regenerative. I said, you guys better get it straight as what's regenerative. And so I sent him, gosh, I think I spent 10 hours writing a, you know, look at this kind of list for him, but I, it really was scary because the, what they have the resources to do is to influence the public discussion, to change the public discussion. We already have been overrun by the fake meat thing that cows are bad. You know, we we're way behind the curve on, on that as a public topic. Mm. And, um, and if, if these guys get a hold of fake regenerative agriculture, that's just terrible, <laughs> you know? So, uh, I mean, it just seems to me that everything is right in the balance right now that, that we have, we have, this is a critical time. We have reached a tipping point in terms of the spread of this. Uh, I was so thrilled that Brownswell had 5,000 people. I was knocked out by the fact that in Alberta, a few weeks ago, we had a soil health conference with 500 producers. <laughs> I thought that was just beyond wonderful. But gosh, the thing is is so fragile. It just it's just one of the things that that I'm aware of and wanting to know. You know, how do we address this? And I know that's not your field, but <laughs> so Barbara, but it's one that I think about, yeah, Barbara, it locally in Alberta, I'm working on it. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm actually a part of RDAR, which is the funding organization within Alberta. And I'm on the board and I've got a regenerative voice in there. And I think it's doing absolutely wonders in there. Right. I, I just, I'm so happy that I'm there. Um, I'm also with CFJ that they've, they've got the the off-calf funding and, and a lot of those things, the, the mentorship program and the nitrogen management and the the cover crop program that's coming out, right? These are these are all signs to me. These are big deals, right? If the all of a sudden we got all this federal uh, money going into these regenerative practices, right? I think that's a big deal in our system. And I've got two quick stories for you: one positive, one negative about that. Uh, your initial question. Uh, the first one, the negative one, 
Uh, it was quite a few years ago. I was actually censored by one of the deans of agriculture in our academia institutions. I'm not going to say where or who, but um, I was directly censored by the dean that I was not allowed to talk about any production practices that we use that might hurt our soil biology. And he said directly because it will offend our sponsors. Right. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Did that offend me? <laughs> right. Like I'm not allowed to say that a, a, a product designed to kill bugs might kill other bugs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like that just blew me away. I didn't go. I refused to go to that. Right. That's, that's just not right. So that's the negative, right. That has happened in the past. That was many years ago. I believe it's changed or is changing quite a bit. I hope. I mean, there's still some of that maybe in the background, but now and the positive example is one of the, one of the professors that we had from the university close to us here, uh, he stated that in his first year soils class, right, all those first year soil students that come in, one of the first thing, the things that he does is makes them watch uh, Kiss the Ground, the movie on Netflix about basically it's about regenerative agriculture in a positive light. Uh, I was so excited to hear that all those first year students at university who most of them have little to no agricultural background. That's one of the first things they're, they're watching. So that was exciting to me that we're making a lot of progress in that field too. So um, we, we can't write off universities altogether. I mean, I, we, we love the stuff they do. They do some fantastic research. Um, uh, but I think their, their, their thinking is catching up to us a lot quicker than it has been in the past. So I'm excited. Yeah, what I wanted to just add in was there's a lot of money sitting out there that could go to phony regenerative agriculture. And I think it's really important that we get the right people on it and let them know, wait a minute, that's not it. It's this. But anyway, Joel, thank you. And Steve, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Perfect. I will say I'm going to put a plug in here for the ARAs, the Applied Research Associations in Alberta, because we I I can't think of one that isn't doing some work with regenerative agriculture and putting research out there and working with the universities in conjunction with with this as well. So just just going to put a plug in for Gateway Research Organization and Gray Wooded Forage Association and Yamilies from CARA, which is has the soil health lab. So so there's a lot of work going on. So it, it is happening for sure. And we count on funders like RDAR and CFGA to keep us moving and, and doing this work. So it's good. Next up, we have Graham Gilchrist. I see you're ready to go there, Graham. Thank you. Now, I suppose this is a challenge there, Amber, because I waxed poetically on the chat. Now you've called it a question. But I, I suppose, Joel, like my thoughts around you've got to be able to take soil health and convert it to cash. So if your soil is at its balance and you've got the biology to produce the plant that you're converting, then there's a steady state and or you're trying to improve it. And if your soils are unhealthy, they're sick, or you don't have the right bio material in there to, to produce the plant, ultimately it's the plant you're trying to, to convert. So in your discussions and work, have you taken that discussion around what is it going to take to have that healthy biome and then be able to convert that plant output and you're either converting it directly to cash or indirectly to cash. Yeah, <clears throat> great question. And of course, there's a fair bit of discussion on 
on this in terms of the difficulties of um, economically grappling with this term of soil health or economically defining that and or defining what the benefit is from from an economic point of view and yeah you're right it's it's definitely is something that i would say there is some work out there but it is it's in that kind of middle ground fuzzy gray area um because it is a little hard to quantify but not i think not necessarily i mean because i think you're right it has to it has to bring some kind of a benefit but one of the challenges is that it doesn't always relate so linearly or so in a short term or so directly in in a three-year research window you know it's kind of this idea that well okay it's great i can count more earthworms uh, in my soil compared to three years ago but that's not going to help me pay the bills you know and so you're you're right it does need some level of economic um, coupling and um, however, I, I think that what's very clear is that the biggest, I think, and where the focus should be, and I think from the from the farmers' kind of evidence of this already, um, the focus should really be on input save, savings on input costs. I think that's where the most obvious um, economic gain comes from, um, more so than maybe necessarily always increasing yield or increasing biomass or these kinds of things. I think that the the the, the low hanging fruit, the easy piece of the puzzle is is um, savings on input costs. And I would say that anecdotally, there's many examples, many case studies of farmers all around the world who are achieving consistent yields, you know, or on par yields, but with much less inputs. Um, so I think that's definitely the easy in, and and um, is is where we should be kind of focusing because. Yes, it's nice to to build earthworms or have more fungi versus bacteria or a little bit more soil carbon, but those things don't always translate into into more yield or, or more production. Um, they can, in some instances, uh, for example, even the topic of soil carbon. When you're at the low end of soil carbon, say less than two percent, there's been some very good review studies or meta analyses, I should say that kind of did really were able to correlate that yes when you are very low in soil carbon and if you can increase it that that does translate into yield but pretty much once you got above say two percent soil carbon then that the strong effect that you could see at the low levels was was gone was diluted out so so there are very specific circumstances where i think again it's uh can be done but it's just soils are so complex and they are so multi-dimensional, multifaceted, and there's just so many variables that are at play here. And therefore, trying to kind of really strongly identify or link, okay, well, what was the variable or the factor that that helped drive that yield or that economic gain becomes very difficult. And in some regards, we could also say, well, that doesn't even matter. If the system as a whole is achieving that benefit, then then maybe that's what's important. And that's as soon as we ignore say that, well, then it says, well, okay, well, that's where I feel that yes, my soil health is bringing benefit and it is giving me yield. But but how do I define that? What what was the piece of that puzzle? So I agree. I think you're you're touching on a question that's very. It is difficult, but there has been some work done on economic analysis of soil health, but it's. It's just so contextually dependent. It's it's really hard to really hard to generalize. In my experience, I'll share that you know the palisade debt, uh, much of a three legged stool. You've got ultimately its health uh, producing a particular plant, 
and you've got the cash flow system, no different than a than a microbiology system overlaying it. And then you've got the bugger factor of the management. So you've got three different systems interacting, you know, like you know, the plant itself and the other two interacting on the plant. Joel, you talked about how the the biology in in the soil is so complex. Uh, and it, it varies with environments. Well, so does the economics of the environments, right? That is so complex. What works in one environment economically, what won't work in another, right? For for what works in the in a grazing situation won't work in a cropping situation because the economics are different. So again, um, I've said this before, we got to look at every case kind of individually and actually know the numbers behind it, right? Is it is it worthwhile doing this in this situation where it's not in another? Because the economic component is so complex as well, because every farm is different, every environment's different. So um, thanks, Graham. A big fan of making sure economics is in every question and or in every topic. And I know Graham's always there to bring in the economic question for me. So awesome. <laughs> And I think that actually ties us right back to that biochar question, which is what the next question is about, because we were talking about the economics of biochar. True North, are you ready to go? Maybe not. I'm pretty sure this was a question. Yeah. Um, their comment or question was, what about the charred forests of BC? Can that be harvested or mixed with shavings from not charred wood in the same forest? I don't know if that's a little too specific a question for yeah i mean i yeah well happy to different biochars definitely uh, different feedstocks of biochars definitely produce different quality biochars that is for sure and yeah different ones have different properties but beyond that i've seen some work done comparing some of those but it's again it's not something you can generalize on it um it depends what then what you're trying to achieve what the goal is with the use of that so but yes i would say that some have different properties i would probably follow an, an approach of mixing different sources together that way you're kind of getting a little bit of different benefits or best of both worlds from mixing different sources but but yeah this is not my specialty but i see there's a raised hand there from greg yeah go for it greg yeah just a, a little plug on on my brief foray into with the uh, biochar I learned a lot, steep learning curve um, from people who've been uh, working with it. And I put in the notes there with uh, Dr. Atula Mohammed um, from um, Innovates Alberta. But one of the things that I learned with about biochar is that the, the qualities and the concentrations can vary significantly with um, a lot of parent stock, whether it's willow or, or uh, aspen which are the favored ones, I think, for, for having a high quality of biochar. But the biochar properties uh, can be quite varied with, with, the, with the stock. And that's why when you look at it, some, when we looked at some different studies, mostly like uh, cattle fed in the feedlot, the source of the biochar varied so much that it, it didn't um, uh, support some, some legitimate comparisons, apples to apples. The thing with, with the use of, of like say burnt forest, I guess the biochar is, is, a, is a very slow process where it basically smolders, have the wood smoldering uh, into say charcoal rather than burning. So it's a very controlled process. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different uh, things in there. The, the bottom line is I, it would be very interested to see um, if there is any applications, either direct uh, application or um, through animal fed things that there were some benefits looking at that and seeing what the uh, the manure process of, of how that would interact with the soil microbiology is 
say, biochar-fed manure versus uh, a control and how that would impact uh, uh, the, uh, the microbiology. So, Perfect. Uh, that that's a good that's a good uh, path to, to maybe explore. Great, thanks, Greg. Um, True North, I did see that you unmuted. If you if you want to just add that, that was your question. So if you want to add something to that, go for it. Next up, we have Matt Van Steelent. Matt, he was a speaker in I don't even know what season that was. <laughs> One of our seasons, I think maybe the first season, Steve. Yeah. And so, Matt, if you're ready to go. Hey, guys. Hi. Glad to see you're still doing the networking. It's great. Uh, the question I had for Joel, do we have any evidence or any trials of foliar vermicast or other compost extracts being used in Western Canada um, to try and kickstart perennial pastures, like specifically on like quite low organic matter, like and it's in really rough shape, uh, low biodiversity and species diversity. Is there a bang for the buck there labor-wise, or are we better to stick with the proven bale grazing up in stock density grazing management? Do you think there's uh, money to be made with the foliars here? Well, okay, if you have, um, if you have livestock, if you are livestock integrated, then I would for sure always argue that they are such a valuable tool um, for your fertility. They are the number one tool, um, obviously, in how you manage and graze those. So if you have the luxury of having livestock um, available or able to be integrated, I would argue that that would definitely give much more um, bang for buck, for sure. Um, now, in relation to vermicasts beyond that, I also wouldn't, you if I were to use a, a compost extract or a vermi extract, my starting point would not be a foliar spray. Um, if I were to use it, I would use it as a seed treatment as the number one and or a liquid inject into the furrow dribbled into the, into the seed trench. Um, now, if you're going to use those materials, that's the best way to use them more so than a foliar spray. And the beauty of that approach of putting it right there around the seed or into the furrow there is that once that once those plants germinate, then that seed and those emerging roots and the root exudates, then they can make use of that biology that's there from the vermicast and feed it, and it can multiply and grow with that plant and with that root system. That's definitely the best way to, to use those um, types of inputs, um, more so than waiting for establishment and then coming on top as a foliar. I've seen some interesting studies done with foliars on vermicasts, and they, they can induce quite unique changes just was one small example. I saw a study that showed that a foliar spray of vermicast um, changed quite a lot of the soil biological properties in the rhizosphere, particularly it increased mycorrhizal colonization, weirdly enough. Um, so there, it, it's not that it's totally has no benefit, but it's definitely not where I would I would prioritize. Um, I, I think it could be a useful piece of the puzzle used in that way, but um, much more so, I would absolutely focus more so on putting it on the seed or into the uh, into the seed trench. Um, but beyond that, if you have livestock, I think that you're probably going to get a bit more bang for your buck from livestock. Keep your cows, Matt. Don't buy earthworms. <laughs> I'm not um, getting rid of the cows, but 
get get a few herbs see what we can do yeah garden my, scale to start my experiments with that matt was actually garden scale my wife was getting into gardening or i thought she was getting into gardening um there's not much garden out there right now but i bought a little worm farm because i didn't know how to build biology in a garden i can do it on pasture and on land i got cattle uh, but I didn't know how to do it. So I surprised her and I brought home a little worm farm for her. And she was not impressed with me. Um, it didn't last very long. I had to manage it and I gave it to a friend. So it smelled so badly. And then, you know what? He brings home these really great smelling gifts like uh, the worm bin or a baby skunk. He thought that that was a good idea to bring home. That's a whole other story. So yeah, Steve and his smelly gifts. I don't know. Yeah. So, but I would like to add a question to that question again, Joel, I'm good at that. When we were at the organic conference, you talked about if you're going to use, uh, if I correct me, how I, if I get this wrong, you're going to use a compost or anything that you're bringing in, make sure it's a local compost. Is, does that apply with vermicast too? Is it local through the soil? Because then the, the uh, bio, what did you say? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to mess this up big time. The biosphere, the, the organisms on the seeds or on the compost need to be local or they're not going to be as effective. Mm, yeah, that's a great, great question. Because yeah, you're right. Um, the worms themselves do culture a very um, unique and and kind of specific biome um, through that vermin composting process. And indeed, there is a lot of overlap between um, worm compost produced in Alberta versus Southern America, um, for example, you know, it's still the worm. It's It's got a core group of micros that are always associated with it. Um, however, there would also be some that are different. So the answer to your question is that it would be a bit of both. There would be some organisms and some overlap, but if you were to source a different product from elsewhere, it would still be quite okay. It would still have a lot of overlapping biome, but there may be some species in there that would not thrive. Um, but you would still have enough that would thrive that I would say that it could still be a viable option. However, the essence of your question is right. The preference is always to be making it yourself if you can, um, making it locally in your temperatures, your conditions, your feedstocks. It, it's just, it's definitely the preferred option if you're going to go down that path. I, and again, I know that people have success buying in products and things from other parts and it can work that other parts of the world or the country. And that can work too, but I think just logically, it just it makes more sense to to be producing it yourself and making it as locally or sourcing as locally locally as possible. Local worms—that's what we need is local worms. Okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> A local worm movement. Yeah. Okay, chat's chat's blowing up right now about smelly gifts and Steve. So <laughs> I'll get to you guys after. Um, next up, we have Edna. Edna, are you ready? Yeah, well, my question was, because I'm quite involved in the horse industry, and they market diatomaceous earth for worm control, and I've also heard of it being fed to ruminants because there's lots of surface area on the diatom shells, um, to also, I guess, like biochar to how microbes to inoculate your soil. So if it really does work for killing intestinal parasites, why wouldn't it kill your nematodes and stuff in your soil? Is it safe to feed diatomaceous earth to livestock? 
Yeah, <clears throat> good question. Yeah, you're right. It's commonly used as a yeah for parasite treatment, etc. And I would say, and it, yeah, it's been used in that way for I mean many for a long time. It has a lot of historical use too. So I think it's certainly safe for the for the animals. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if it's something that necessarily you should be using on a routine routine basis, but more so for you know certain points of treatment rather than maybe every day every day um, type supplementing. And then on the other other end of that, then the other part, your question is an interesting one um, because it's also used it to, as I'm sure you'll know, to kind of blend with grain for stored grain to keep some of the insects and, and weevils out to that kind of thing. And even within, I know within, for example, cropping systems, it's also used even as a foliar spray um, to also help with manage insects in that same way but also to even be a fertilizer to, to provide a, a source of a nutritional source of silicon, which is a beneficial nutrient for plants. So it's also used in those contexts as well. And the thing is about diatomaceous earth is that certainly I would start by saying it's definitely not going to be a problem for things like bacteria or fungi or any of the microorganisms. Uh, they are too, although the diatomaceous earth, it is, microscopically sharp it's a very sharp material that scratches uh insects that have an exoskeleton um particularly the ones that are most vulnerable to it um but on the scale of the bacteria itself it wouldn't be sharp enough or big the bacteria is too small so so i wouldn't say there's any risk of amongst the microorganisms but potentially amongst some of the soil insects is a possibility uh, however, the thing about uh, diatomaceous earth also is that it doesn't seem to be um, as effective when it's wet, which I and I don't know how this works in the room. And I, I think your question is valid that there's maybe some cause for concern. We should proceed with caution. But I would say this. I've seen some work that where they were also testing it against snails, for example. And when that diatomaceous earth was dry, uh, and you put, for example, you take a slug or a snail and put a put a ring of diatomaceous, sprinkle a ring of diatomaceous earth around it, the snail will not cross the diatomaceous. It's very sharp and prickly for it. So it could also have good um, usefulness for snails in the garden. But as soon as that diatomaceous earth is wet, as soon as you put a bit of water on there, this the snail will just slime straight over it. Uh, it has no problems. And so there does seem to be some factor there that when the when then the diatomaceous earth is wet, um, that it is not as not as effective or not as harsh on on the insects. So in the soil environment, if there's soil moisture there, maybe that is making it rather inert. Um, but potentially, I think the potential is there. I think your, the essence of your question is right. There may be some negatives um, associated where it may affect some of the soil insects. It's usually, as I say, the insects uh, that have the exoskeleton, they're the ones that are most vulnerable, most prone to, to the effects of the diatomaceous earth. Okay. I just see lots of contradictions. So how would it work in a wet room and then either? Mm. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. And I've actually had the same questions for years and I will use it but like as Joel said once in a while I don't use it all but all the time. One of my concerns with it is if it's 
you know, uh, slicing the, the, the skin or whatever of the internal parasites, what's it doing to the microvilli of the intestine of the cattle? Right. Is, you know, maybe there's no damage this year, right. This time when you did it, but if you use that every year for the life of that cow, by the time she's 12 years old is, is her nutrient absorption as effective as it could be, because maybe it's been sliced up. I, I have no idea. I'm just, you know, these ideas are in my head and I have no proof of them. Um, we need more research, right? We haven't researched all this stuff because this is the, the work of the innovators and early adopters. And there's, we don't have the research behind it. So yeah, uh, I would happily do research on some of these, uh, well, organic or snake oil or all these other things that are out there. Um, some of them seem to work and the innovators are making them work. So we should do some tests on that and see if it's working or if it's not. So, uh, yeah, that's my two cents. I know nothing about it, but I have used it a few times here and there, but for the people listening on the podcast, Steve did just do quotations around the snake oil thing. So please don't send us nasty messages. Uh, we, you know, we, there were quotations there. Um, I'm. We're going to take True North wants to make a comment about diatomaceous earth. And then we've actually hit over time already, guys. This has been crazy. It's been awesome. But we'll let True North make a comment. And then we'll let our speakers just do a quick closing statement. And Greg, if you want to do a quick closing statement as well while you can. So let's let's go to True North and then we'll move into closing. Diatomaceous earth is the, one of the most wildly over uh, credited in, um, materials in the organic farming world. In England, where they take organic farming and also poultry very, very seriously, the universities have done a lot of research comparing, for instance, um, organic insecticides or organic treatments for insect um, infestations. And they've compared diatomaceous earth with a number of other products. It scores about a three out of 10, even in a dry environment. And in a wet environment, it scores zero. So, um, I'm sure it doesn't do any harm in the soil. In California, they have banned diatomaceous earth for a lot of uh, applications uh, because if you breathe the dust of it, uh, you're, you're subjecting yourself to silicosis. And they specifically recommend that you not put it in your chicken dust baths because the chickens are going to get uh, lung infections and lung damage by breathing diatomaceous earth dust. But again, you know, wet, it doesn't seem to do any harm to anything. Great. Thank you. Um, we might take, let's do this. Let's go Greg first, then Steve, and then Joel. So typically here, guys, for you guys who, who haven't been on here before, we do just a quick closing thought and perhaps something encouraging for producers going forward. And we'll just take you guys in order. You can lead into each other. Go for it, Greg. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, it's certainly been a really uh, great and interesting evening and in, in the, the topics and the discussion and the interchange and the networking is is uh, really rewarding. And it's it's good to see the the thought process of, of people being curious and, and that curiosity um, of um, what's going to happen, what would happen next. 
and to to wonder of of, of things rather than just going to linear uh, soil science as we had in in the past is is really exciting. We're really uh, happy to be part of uh, your networking tonight, of Greg Wooded. Uh, thanks for uh, having us as as a partner for you tonight, and uh, looking forward to uh, a lot more networking evenings. And uh, for anybody who's uh, in our neck of the woods, um, keep in touch with us, and uh, we're going to be having a number of different uh, grazing and soil health and regenerative agriculture uh, activities throughout the year. So looking forward to that. And uh, thanks again. And uh, Joel, it's been uh, a pleasure uh, sharing some of your thoughts this evening. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Greg. What a what a fantastic night. Um, I know there's tons of questions still in the in the chat. I haven't been able to keep up to chat. I have not seen the comments about the skunk yet. Um, I will get into that when the after networking networking, which is about to start, which for all of you on the podcast, uh, that's the best part of the night. <laughs> the after networking networking. So um, we will uh, get into that right away. But my challenge to everybody out there, what are you going to do this spring, this summer, this, this season to get the party started? You know, how are you going to get kickstart your biology in your piece of land that you're managing that particular piece, whether it's a garden, whether it's a pasture, whether that it's cropland, what are you going to do to get the party started? That's my challenge to you. And uh, yeah, big thanks to Joel. Awesome. You're a rock star, man. Uh, really appreciate you being here. So I will turn it over to you for closing thoughts. Well, thank you, Steve and Amber, um, and also Greg, uh, for having me tonight. Uh, <clears throat> pleasure to be here. Perhaps if I if I, if it's okay, I, I I will just give a very quick shameless plug uh, before I maybe give a closing thought. Uh, I've been working heavily on a project for um, many months now, almost 12 months, uh, an online course that I've just recently launched. And um, I'll post a link into the uh, into the chat there for anyone that might be interested. It's, <clears throat> it is a little more focused or relevant um, for, say, some of the cropland producers, uh, the cropping producers, and it's on foliar nitrogen. And it's really off the back of obviously this being a hot topic at the moment with the price of nitrogen, price of fertilizers, but also the legislative push to reduce um, nitrogen emissions that we're all aware of. So I've put together a very detailed um, online course that will be uh, happening in February. Um, there'll be over four weeks. It's going to be 10 lectures, but happening over a four-week period through February where we're just going to take a very deep dive into using foliar nitrogen um, to help really improve efficiencies and, and use uh, much less of that input. So um, I've just posted a link in there so people can check that out. Um, and if anyone else is listening, depending on when this comes out, um, it'll be happening through the month of Feb on uh, Thursday evenings, and uh, it's really a deep dive into nitrogen nutrition, nitrogen metabolism, foliar technology, and how to use these two things to get do more with less, you know, achieve, uh, maintain production, but use a, a lot less nitrogen fertilizer. So um, that's my shameless plug. Um, you'll find the links there, or you can Google that. <clears throat> It'll come up. And um and lastly, then, yeah, I would say that um, I agree with your comment there, Steve. I think it's uh, great to be having these discussions during the off season at this time of the year. 
And it's great to kind of get some inspiration and interaction with others and networking and share ideas. Um, I would close uh, perhaps not specifically on the theme of building soil biology, but um, part of that is what we're doing here today is the importance of this networking and this peer-to-peer -peer learning. It is just such a valuable tool. And we had some of the discussions tonight about research and the research agenda and whether there's some good academics out there or not. We kind of touched on a lot of this. And, and I saw there a comment about um, farmers have always really been the pioneers and the ones leading things. And researchers are uh, having to catch up and then to validate and quantify some of those practices. And that's the, I think, a really important point is that for something to be truly innovative, they're actually, to, to really embody that definition of that word, to be truly innovative, um, for something to be novel and to be innovative, there actually shouldn't be any research on it. Uh, we talk about being evidence-based and following the science and the research um, agenda in that regard, but for something to truly be innovative, that means that there is no evidence to support it. And that's kind of, I see what's happening all around the world at the moment. Farmers are the, the real innovators in this space, and the researchers are, gen for the most part, and there are exceptions to this, but generally are, are, are catching up to that. And, um, and so I think that the key tool that farmers then uh, you do use and needs to be nurtured more is this this part of the equation is the peer-to-peer -peer learning and that knowledge transfer and that knowledge exchange amongst yourselves to really foster and drive that innovation and and um, so I would encourage you all to come you know obviously you're all plugged in tuned in tonight but um, come along to other similar events and attend networking events and meet up with each other and share these ideas. It's just, it's such an important piece of the puzzle that really helps to drive that innovation that we kind of touched on a little bit tonight through the discussion. So, so I thank you all for being here um, tonight. Great to have your questions and some discussion and, and just acknowledge the good work you're doing and being here and encourage you to, to, to carry on doing that. So thank you very much for, for having me and, and um, look forward to the post recording chat.